Good morning, church. Y'all doing all right? Good. Listen, before we get in the Word, I wanted to just, I was in my office this morning preparing, praying, and I just remembered this quote, familiarity breeds complacency. You know, the idea that we become so familiar with something that we can, it can kind of just, get, we can get complacent in it. And, and I just think about that as we get into church, as we worship, as we open the Word of God, that we can get so familiar with certain things or things we've heard before that we can become complacent. And so I want to just give us a fresh perspective this morning and remind us that the first church they didn't have the Bible that we have today. We're blessed, right, to have Genesis through Revelation, the combined scriptures, the canonized scriptures. We get to go to Mardell's and buy one of these or wherever, bring it to the, to the church, open it up, and read from it regularly. I mean, the first church, they didn't have this. They had circulated letters. The apostle would write a letter, and it would make its way to Ephesus or to a different region, and they would read it, and they waited with anticipation on a letter from an apostle. And when they got it, man, they cherished it. They loved it. They read it in its entirety. We've taken five weeks to cover the first three chapters of Ephesians, and there were no chapters, no verses in the original letter. It was, simp it was simply a letter. And so he would send them that letter, and his church would just gather around with much excitement, and they would read the words that the apostle Paul was sharing with them. I think the microphone's still on back there. I heard David talking. I thought it was God, but I realized the voice was David. I was like, God sounds a lot cooler than that, I'm assuming. <clears throat> anyway, so just want us to have that perspective this morning. When we get into the Word, that we, we approach it with a sense of awe and expectancy. God, I want you to speak to me. And that's, that should be every one of our hearts' attitudes as we walk into church every week. Amen? Amen. So we're in Ephesians, and the, the title of today's message is A Worthy Walk. And I want to share with you what is probably my number one Bible verse. I can't tell you exactly why, but it's always been my life verse. Um, I, I've known this for years, and I've just always hung on to this one verse and quoted it over and over and over, not because I'm good at it, but it's just been a personal goal of mine. And the idea is this, when you truly realize who you are in Christ, and this is all about learning our identity in Christ, when you truly get it and you truly understand what he's done for you, it should have a huge impact in your life. I grew up in church. I had the drug problem when I was a kid. I was drugged to church every time the doors were open. I was there all the time. And, right, and I grew up in some different teachings. And, and I'm not going to say they were teaching bad stuff, but what we caught was there was no just absolute certainty about this thing called heaven. And so I remember as a young boy, like, I just didn't know. I didn't have any peace. I didn't know if I was saved. And I've been to church hundreds of times, been baptized, probably that many. And I just, I remember just growing up with this uncertainty. And then I started really realizing and looking deep into the word at what God says about those who've placed their faith in him through the gospel. And it began to have an impact on me. It began to change just my own perspective. And there's this sense of awe, like, God, you would do that for me? You did all of that through the gospel for, for me? And then the, the follow-up question is, like, how do you want me to live? How do you want me to live my life in a way that pleases you? And so this Ephesians 4.1 has become my life verse. And so what I want to do is begin, uh, we'll read verses 1 through 6. I was going to do verses 1 through 16, and then this morning I just felt like I needed to stop it at verse 6. And in the first service, I barely got done because you could spend most of the time in verse 1. So verses 1 through 6, I want to ask you to lend me your hearts, lend me your ears, let the Holy Spirit speak to us as we read his word. Verse 1, therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, building yourselves together with peace, or binding yourself together with peace, excuse me. 
For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. Father, I pray that you would just bless our time and your word this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to the truths that you have for us today. I humble myself before you. God, I just ask that you use me. Lord, we really want to hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So just to give you a quick recap of the layout of this letter of Ephesians. Again, there's no chapters, no verses. It's just one letter that was sent. And Paul's style was to begin the letter with a teaching, a correction, or you know, just, just to make sure they understood doctrine. He would teach, and then towards the halfway point of his letter, he would switch it over to application. So he would teach a truth, and he'd be like, this is what that truth looks like in your life. And so chapters 1, 2, and 3 is where we've been for the past five weeks We've been looking at the, the practical, the doctrinal side of the doctrine and of the gospel. Like, who are we in Christ? And if you've been here with us for those five weeks, are you just not amazed at how much God has done for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ? All right, like, so three of you are here the whole time. That's awesome. But I just need you to trust me when I say that God has really blessed those of us who've placed our faith in the gospel. I mean, so much so you may not even know it. So he starts there, and then today in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 1, he makes this huge transition. This is big. It's the so what. Like, all right, so this is what you're saying about the gospel. So what, Paul? What does that mean? And here's a key truth that I think every one of us need to know in this room today. Here's a key truth. God did not just save us to get us into heaven. God didn't just save us to get us into heaven. He saved us to a family. We're called the family of God, God the Father. And if it's a family, we have the siblings, and we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. He also calls us the church, and as a church, he's the foundation, the cornerstone. So he's called us to so much more than just going to heaven one day when this world is over. We've been called to a purpose, and I hope you know that this morning. God has a plan and a purpose for each person's life. So much more than just getting I'm thankful for salvation. I'm thankful for all the blessings, but I also want to know, what has he called me to? What is his purpose for me in my life? And so look at verse 1. He starts with the word, therefore. Now, in this church, you've heard me say it a bunch. If you've been here a bunch, when you see the word, therefore, you need to know what it's. Okay, so good. Thank you for listening. So you know what it's there for. The idea is you're going to go back and consider what's been said previously. So in chapters 1, 2, and 3, or in a couple of really long Greek run-on sentences, Paul has laid out all of the blessings that are ours because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Therefore, based on chapters 1, 2, and 3. Okay? So you with me? So therefore, because of all the blessings that are ours in Christ, therefore, I, Paul, a prisoner for the gospel for Christ. And so he said he's a prisoner before of Christ. Remember, he was arrested on the road to Damascus when he was knocked off his donkey and he was recommissioned to go be a messenger of the gospel. And so he claims to be a, a prisoner of Christ. Here, he says, I'm in prison for serving the Lord. He was in a Roman prison because he was sharing the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was committed to that. I'm a prisoner because I'm committed to God. To com committed to preaching the gospel. And so this is the one it's speaking. Therefore, because of what God has done, I, Paul, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you, beseech you, urge you, implore you. Parakaleo is the Greek word. And what he's saying there, this is he's encouraging a response or an action. 
Okay? He's not encouraging like, wow, or well, that's cool. He's encouraging a response or an action based on chapters 1, 2, and 3. Because God has done this, I, ur- I beg you, I implore you, I urge you to what? To peripateo, to walk, to live a life, to lead a life. We all love the little babies, right? The ones that are listening, you hold them and you cuddle them. And when the grandkids were born, I loved laying on the couch and they, they wouldn't run off because they couldn't run off. You know, they just let their, you hug them and love them. And it was so sweet. And then everybody looks forward to the day when they take the first step. And then you get excited and they didn't fall down. They take a second step. And we get this idea that a, a baby is going to mature enough. They're going to grow. And over time, they're going to see something on the other side of the room and they want to go after it, right? And so they have this freedom. They start walking. And so Paul's using this imagery when he's talking about what we should do, how we should respond. He's urging us to a lifestyle. He calls it peripateo, walking or living a life, how we live in the life. This is my favorite word, axios, worthy. When you see somebody that is good at what they do, I mean, they're a hard worker and they get paid a lot of money, you say, it's worth every penny. They're worth what we paid, Right? You go to a restaurant, you get great service, great food. You're like, man, it was, we've eaten at a Brazilian steakhouse. And I've walked out there going, that was awesome. It was worth every penny. And there was a lot of pennies. But it was so good. But we get this idea of worth, of value, right? So Paul's saying now, therefore, because of all that's happened for us in the gospel, I beg you, I urge you, I implore you, I'm encouraging a response or an action from you to walk to live it. It's a lifestyle. It's the way we speak, the way we talk, the way we walk. I'm encouraging a lifestyle that is worthy. The word worthy is axios. And in the Greek, we get this impression of scales. This is what it's talking about. And the word axios means equal weight. So this is not a working scale. It would be cooler if it was. But um, So what we've looked at is in chapter 1, we learned that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that we've been adopted into the family of God, that every spiritual blessing, like he's poured his grace on us, he's showered us with his kindness, we have an inheritance in heaven, we've been shown the mystery of the will of Christ, we, um, are, we, we, we have the Holy Spirit that has sealed us until the day of redemption. We once were dead, now we're alive, and um, we, we, we once were outsiders, now we're insiders. The wall of hostility is broken down. I mean, you just, okay, I might have missed a couple. The, we get it, right? So Paul is saying in chapters 1, 2, and 3, this is what God, through the gospel, has done for you. And just a side note, not because you deserved it, not because you worked for it. It's the gift of grace. But when you place your faith in the gospel, he says, hey, let me tell you something. This is what God's done for you through the gospel. That's so cool, church. Now, Paul says, I'm begging you. I implore you. I urge you to live a life that's in balance. You're like, how in the world could I ever do that? He's done so much. Around Christmas time, we say, what do you get for the person that has everything? Don't we? They got everything. What are you going to get for them? Here's another way. What do you give in return to someone who's given you everything? And God has given us everything in the gospel. And so now Paul's saying, because he's given us all of this in the gospel, I urge you to live a life worthy, equal, to evenly distribute a counterweight in proportion to the weight of what he's done for us. Now, here's what people will do. If I can go to church a few times, maybe that'll do it. And we, we give our church service. I mean, I wish I had a different color here. And, and you know what? I'll give a little bit every once in a while on the tithes and offerings. And all those are important. Those are useful. We need those. But 
You know, I was raising the right family. We add all these things up, and we hope that it'll counterbalance what he's done for us. And it falls so short, doesn't it? And Paul's like, I want you to live a life worthy of the calling. So what does it look like? The word klesis is calling, and it means like you're summoned, and it's, to, it's the condition that you enter in upon whenever someone summons you. Like, hey, come here a second. You go in, yeah, what do you need? And they're summoning you to a purpose. God's summoning us, calling us to a purpose, and he's now saying, hey, I want you to live your life worthy of that purpose that he's called you to. I hope you're with me so far, right? So the key here is consistency. It's like, I want to live my life. It's my desire. It's the way I've always wanted to preach. Like, I just want to encourage people to live a life worthy of the calling, for we've been called by God. I want to live my life in such a way where I'm just honoring him because of what he's done for me. And I know that I fall short. I fall short all the time, but I, it's just my goal. I want to live a life that's pleasing to God. It's consistent with this gospel that I claim, that I trust in, and I believe in, right? Consistency. So that's what we have in scales. When they're equally balanced, they're consistent. They're not inconsistent. Like, I heard a story of, who well, actually, we know the story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay this right here for a minute. Of a young boy named James who was raised in church. His dad was a pastor. His dad died when he was about two years old. But his mom stepped up, and she continued to take James and his older brother to church regularly. Well, James would listen to the gospel, respond to the gospel. As a teenager, he'd get baptized in the church and have his name added to the role of First Baptist Church, right? And he was baptized there. He would later become a part of the choir. That's what every parent hopes, right? You raise a kid in church, they get baptized, they join the church, they're serving. The only problem was when he wasn't at church singing in the choir, he was murdering people. He was robbing banks. Jesse James and his older brother, Frank... Were killed over two dozen people, robbed a lot of people. Can you say inconsistency? So, so much so that the church, even today, kind of, some of them deny, like, no, 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 he wasn't. It's on the rolls. You can look it up. Jesse James on the deal. He asked later to be removed from that. Thanks, Jesse. We didn't want to have to excommunicate you, right? But Jesse James, I mean, raised in the church, baptized, singing in the choir, but we kill a few people on the side. No big deal, right? That's inconsistent with this living. And we're called to a life of consistency. And, and, and it's not just here, and it's not just something I made up. Listen to what John, the disciple that Jesus loved, he says this. God is light, and there's no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say. So this is the confession. If we say, I have fellowship with God. I have fellowship with God. He says, if we say that, but we go on living in spiritual darkness, we are not practicing the truth. Again, he says, if someone claims, I know God, and we live in a world, oh, I know God. I've got my own faith. I know God. But doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and not living in the truth. Again, he says, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. We're called Christians. And the idea is little Christs, right? God's will is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. He loves you where you're at, but he refuses to leave you there. He wants to grow you in your salvation. And so you become more and more and more like his son, Jesus. That's his purpose for our life. Amen? And so James says, faith without works is what? It's useless. It's dead. And so there needs to be a consistency in our walk. And so a worthy walk is defined by consistency. It's like, hey, I trust in Christ. Is it demonstrated? I, I love God. I, I want to honor God. And, and Paul is basically saying live a life that's in equal proportion to live a life of consistency. 
Are you with me so far? Okay, so like I said, that was only one point. We could spend more time on that, but I'll go forward. So it's a call to walk worthy. Look at verse 2. On occasion, be humble. I'm just making sure y'all are following along with me. It says always, or in some of your translations, it will say in all humility. And so the idea is not just from time to time, but lifestyle of humility. Now, we understand the concept of humility. We've been teaching it for years. We've heard it for years. But in the first century, there the Greek and the Romans didn't even actually have a word, I was told, for the word humility. Because it was something they avoided at all costs. Because they're all about, I'm the man, and everybody's trying to be up top. And so for them, to humble yourself was like a little cowering dog. You ever walk up to a dog, and it's like, pees a little? And it's like, that to them is what they thought of when they thought of humility. And so it's beneath it. So Paul is saying, hey, listen, here's how to live a life worthy in equal balance. Is It starts with an attitude. How many know we need to have an attitude adjustment sometimes even in the church? Parents of teenagers, say amen. Attitude adjustment. So Paul is saying... Always be humble. That's to think of yourself less or have a right evaluation of yourself. It's not all about you. The world does not revolve around you. And it was a foreign concept to them. But he's saying the life of a follower of Christ is to say, hey, I recognize that I'm saved by grace. I recognize that he has saved me. And I'm not all that, but I'm just a sinner saved by grace, right? He says always be humble. Then he says and gentle. The word gentle there is meekness, and that does not mean weakness. Some people think, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian now. I've got to be like a spineless weakling, and I can't stand up for anything. No, no, that's not what it is at all, uh, because Paul certainly was no spineless weakling. Jesus wasn't spineless. The word meek means strength under control. So imagine, if you will, this huge, muscular stallion of a horse. This great strength and the ability to do great destruction can be brought under control with a bit in its mouth and a harness on its head, right? That's strength under control. We call that self-control, right? And so he's saying, hey, listen, our attitude should always be one of meekness, not weakness, but strength under control. That is self-control. And it doesn't mean that we're never angry. It just means that we're angry at the right things. And some would call that a righteous indignation. Jesus flipped over tables in the temple. There's a time that we get angry as followers of Christ. But it's not when you wake up in the morning, you didn't sleep good, and somebody says the wrong thing to you at the drive-up store, right? Or whatever, on the highway or at Walmart. We're not supposed to be angry all the time, but we're supposed to be meek. It's a self-control. He says, this is an attitude. It's a call to a worthy attitude. So be humble, be meek or gentle. And then here's one that we, we don't really struggle with today in our culture, in our times, because our church is so much more advanced than this, but be patient with each other. We don't struggle with that, do we? First crowd got it. They're like, ha, ha, yeah, yeah, we need patience. And we need it now, right? Because patience is the ability to wait. So he says, be patient with what? With each other. Because in the context of the body and the church, we're, gonna, we're all in this together, right? Do you realize across the globe, there's different dialects, different cultures, different colors of skin that all trusted in the same gospel. And we're in this great family. There's going to be some tension. There's going to be some awkward there's going to be some times where we as followers of Christ, brothers and sisters, need to have an attitude of patience. Just slow your roll and just have patience, right? Paul says that's a worthy attitude is to have one of patience. And then another one is making allowances for each other's faults 
because of your love. Love is, is the key, right? We're supposed to walk in love with one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. He says, make allowance for each other's faults. You know what that means? That means to put up with. Now, there's a lot of things that I'm willing to put up with, but there's some that I'm not. And sometimes when you get those, they're like, ah, oh, it just drives me crazy. And you don't want, you've got a short fuse, and you've got a short little amount of time that you're willing to deal with something. And especially in the household of faith, you're like, I just don't want to put up with them. He says, make allowance for each other's faults, because guess what? Paul anticipated, he knew that we would need it in the church. Amen? And so he's like, listen, I want you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've been called to. When you consider what God has done on the one side, you live your life in equal proportion, in equal weight to that, right? The balanced life and, and a huge part of it. In fact, he starts with the attitude because I think it's where it all starts at. Is he says, in your attitude, you need to be humble, gentle, patient, and make allowance for each other's faults and failures because of your, your love. So look at the next verse. Now, it's a call to something that I am and always have been extremely passionate about in the church. Talk about it in our staff. Talk about it in small group. Talk about it in the context of from this pulpit. I would rather have a small church that's unified than a large church that has all the bells and whistles that's got division. Because God blesses unity. There's something precious about unity in the church. Now here's the thing. Listen to what he says. Make every effort... Like we, as followers of Christ, should make every effort to, notice it doesn't say create unity, but to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. So we have the responsibility of protecting, maintaining, and keeping something that is extremely precious to God. It was extremely precious to Paul to lay it out, this beautiful unity that is the church, that is the body of Christ. It was created by God, amen? So God is the one that broke the wall of hostility and he's put us all together. He's like, this is a perfect, beautiful union. Protect it. Watch over it. Keep it. Make every effort to do that, actually. United in the Spirit. So protect this unity, binding yourselves together with peace. And so we are not to create it. And it doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that everybody's got to talk like Shane, act like Shane, because that would get old real quick. I look at me in the mirror, and I wouldn't want another one of me around, okay? So it doesn't mean uniformity, because there's a lot of diversity in the church. But in the diversity, there's this unity because of our love for Christ and our recognition, our belief and understanding of what he's done for us. Are y'all catching what I'm throwing? It's like, I want you to live a life worthy of the calling. And the way you're going to do that is you're going to start with the attitude. You're going to walk in humility and peace and patience and gentleness and all this stuff. You're going to walk in this way. And I want you to protect unity because when you protect the unity, now you're, 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 you're kind of in the same groove with where God's, God's heart is in the unity. And he's like, man, oh, look at how I'm working for unity, protecting unity, keeping the unity. Now I would say this, there are the non-essentials and then there are essentials. And on the essentials, they're worthy of dividing over. Um, there's plenty of examples in Scripture where there's some heresy being taught and Paul is calling that out. The church actually grew from that division of, um, of their disagreement there. They actually thrived because of that. So there are things that we need to separate on. It's like, I, I believe there's only one way to, to heaven, and that's through Christ Jesus in the gospel. Amen? If there's a back door or two or three other ways, or if you can do these five pillars of faith, we're going to divide on that. Because that's an essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And that's worthy of dividing. And I believe the church is healthier when they have a solid, unified doctrine there. But, and most of us have experienced these, we divide over the non-essentials. What color are the chairs? I've seen churches split over an argument on what color the pews are going to be in a remodel. That's dumb. Which translation of the Bible do you use, Shane? I've used them all. Which one's the best, Shane? The one that you'll read. Oh, you go to that church, you don't read this version. I mean, we were dividing over the non-essentials. And I'm not minimizing one over the other, but I'm saying we're fighting in church over things that we shouldn't be fighting and dividing over on the essentials and the non-essentials. We divide over the non-essentials, and it destroys and it weakens churches, right? When we say, I can't go to that church because the pastor's got ADHD, or I can't go to that church because the music's too loud, or I can't go to that church because it's not traditional, or I can't go to that church because it is traditional, whatever it is, that's what we do, right? And so to protect the unity means that we got to be careful not to divide over the wrong things. And we just got to let some things go. And so there's this quote that says, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty, freedom. In all things, charity. A modern version of that is unity in necessary things, liberty in doubtful things, and charity in all things. There's a couple that wanted to move out west and be farmers, raise cattle. And so they move out to Texas. They get some land, and some friends visit them from upstate New York, where they're from. And they notice the name on the gate, and they're like, hey, what's the story behind the name? Well, the man says, well, I wanted to name it Bar J. My wife wanted to name it Susie Q. One of our sons wanted to name it Flying W, and the other wanted to name it Lazy Y. So we're calling it Bar J, Susie Q, Flying Y, Lazy Y. To which his friend says, but where are all the cattle? Oh, they didn't survive the branding. <laughs> Listen to this. Dividing over non-essentials can be devastating. Do you understand that, church? So we're called to walk in unity. Notice the next verse, verse 4. He gives us the basis for this unity, like the foundation of this unity. Um, it's already been done through the gospel. This is what we're protecting. He says, Verse 4, for there is, notice the word one, it's used seven times. There is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. This is the basis of the unity. And so I want you to notice, first off, there's a trinity, there's a unity in the trinity in this. So notice it says in verse 4, one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. And notice in verse 5 it says, the Lord. We understand this will be Jesus, the Messiah. So there's the Spirit, there's the Son, and in verse 6, one God. And so there's unity in the Trinity, and that unity in the Trinity should be mirrored in the community of the church. Are you, are you hearing me, church? So there's this perfect, beautiful unity in the Trinity, and it should be modeled in his church in the body as well. So he says there's one body. What does it mean? We're all in this thing together. There's the eye, there's the head, there's the toe, there's a couple of butts, there's an ear, and there's a, all that stuff, right? We're one body. The head is Christ. There's not two bodies. There's one body, and we're all in it together, right? There's one spirit, the Holy Spirit, that indwells all who call upon him. Isn't that beautiful that we all share the same Holy Spirit once we place our faith in Christ? There's one glorious hope. What is that hope? Hope of the future. Every one of us have placed our faith in the gospel on one day. When this world is over, we're going to be at eternity with him. We all share that same hope. 
Don't matter where you're at on the globe, if you believe in the gospel, there's one glorious hope. There's one Lord, Jesus. He's the only one. You don't get your own personal Jesus. There's not going to be another Jesus 2.0 to come up behind this one and do something different. There's one Jesus and one Lord. Amen? There's one faith. What is that faith? The faith that we share in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. There's one faith. One baptism, this is not really necessarily water baptism, but he's saying it's the, the principle of baptizing us into the body of Christ through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. There's one baptism, and there's one God, one God, and Father of all. And so we and his family, his children, brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul's saying, hey, listen, if you're going to live a life that's worthy, that's equal to what God has done for you through the gospel. Listen, it's more than just feeling good. It's more than saying, praise Jesus, hallelujah, thank you, praise and worship. It, it, it evokes action and response. That's why he says, I urge you to live your life, to lead your life, to talk, to walk, to act in, in such a way that is equally counterbalanced to what God has done for us. And you're like, man, that's an impossible task. You're right, but all things are possible through Christ, Right? And so our goal, hopefully, is to try to maintain that, to try to live in such a way that it is worthy of what we have received. And so when it comes to unity, the responsibility is not just on leadership. It's on every part of the body of Christ to protect unity. Are you with me? So the question is, and I would say of self-evaluation, that we all come to the point in our life where we have to just, you know, maybe nobody else is around. We're going, God, this is... This hit me hard today, this, this message about living in a way that's equal to what you've done for me. And, I, and I'm going to be the first to say there's no way on my best day that I could ever live anywhere near the level of what you've done for me. But what Paul is saying is, here's how I'm going to live a life worthy is to have an attitude of humility, meekness, patience, long-suffering, and to protect unity. That, that seems like a goal that I could probably aim at. And when we do that, that unity, or excuse me, that walking worthy is displayed in unity. And so I think like in evaluation, I'm going, God, is there something missing in my life? Is there something that you're calling me to in this whole walking worthy of the call, of the call that we've been called to? So here's my question for, for, I guess, reflection as we wrap this up today. Are you living a life of consistency? Does your life reflect that you belong to him? Are you living, are you speaking in a way? Are you walking and talking and, 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 and just responding in a way that reflects that you belong to him? What areas do you need to ask him to help you balance in the scales out with? Are you displaying a proper attitude? Oh man, I, I, I'm the first to admit that sometimes I need an attitude adjustment and I ask God to do it for me. God, i got a bad attitude today, and I need you to help me adjust that. And so what areas do you need God to help you change when it comes to attitude? And I'll ask this question. This is probably the most important to me as a pastor is are you doing your part to maintain unity? Are you doing your part to maintain, to protect, and to keep unity? Because it's not the, the job of the pastor and those guys to just always be making it happen, but it's on every one of us if we're followers of Christ and if we understood what he's done for us in the gospel and to walk worthy of the calling is to live in a way that's equal to that. And he says, hey, one of the ways is unity. And so it's on me and it's on you to protect and to work on unity. And so the most practical way is this. Is there an offense? Go to the brother. 
Um, the, the, actually, the responsibility is on two people in that. Like, if you've offended someone and you know you've offended them, he says, you're bringing your offering to the Lord. Stop. Leave your offering at the altar. Go be made right with your brother. And then when that's done, then come back and give your offering to the Lord. So the responsibility is on the offender. But then also the responsibility is on the one who, who is offended. Matthew 18, if someone offends you, you go to that person. You show them their fault. And it's not a pointing of the fingers, but it's the whole point is to try to to bring back to unity because we're in a diverse body and we're going to rub skin with each other from time to time. But the problem is we've got to be willing to work at unity and maintaining it. Amen? So the responsibility is on both parties. I, I would say this, who left the door open? Did you ever, I was raised in southwest Oklahoma and, you know, everyone, we're kids. You don't think about it. You go outside, you leave the door open. Mom comes home later and the house is full of flies in the middle of summer. That's irritating, isn't it? I'm an adult now, I get it. Who left the door open? You've heard me say it, huh? You weren't born in a barn, right? Who left the door open? So I say that because Paul in Ephesians, later he will say this. um, Do not let the sun go down while you're angry. Now, I use this all the time in the context of of a wedding ceremony, telling the husband and wife, hey, just never go to bed mad. If you've got to stay up late in the night and work it out, y'all make sure you do that. Reaffirm your commitment, your love to one another. Make sure, make sure, make sure. It's as important, but it also applies to the church, right? And if there's ever an offense, there's something going on. It's like, hey, listen, don't go to bed angry. And the reason I say that's so big is because the very next verse says, and neither give the devil a foothold. So that's to leave the door open. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. The return of Christ is imminent. You're like, well, no duh, Shane. My uncle said that seven, you know, 30 years ago. I remember hearing it. And he was not wrong. And neither am I wrong in saying it today. In fact, today, we are closer to the return of Christ than we've ever been before. Write that down. And tomorrow, we'll be closer to the day of the return of Christ than we are today. Right? Here's something else I know. That Satan knows this, and he knows his time is limited. And I can assure you he's working overtime. I can assure you he would love nothing more than destroy what God has done through the church. He would love nothing more than to get his foothold in the door. And when we leave that door open in anger and unresolved conflict, we leave a door open. And it's like, who left the door open? So Paul's counsel, my counsel is like, hey, listen, let's make sure that we do everything that we can to keep the peace, to keep the unity because it's so precious to him. Um, I'll say this, just in transparency. Um, I think six or seven times in the past, less than two weeks, there's been something that has happened, events that have happened. And I, and I just go to my knees and I pray. I'm like, God, is this, is this a, an open door? Is this Satan trying to get us? Because he hates. Can I just say he hates this church? You know why? Because we're preaching the truth. Because we love God and we're honoring God and Satan hates that. And so if he can destroy, he's going to destroy. And so he, I think six or seven times I've heard this week just different things that come up. And we immediately go to prayer and go, let's recognize what it is. And let's just attack it before it, it, you know, Satan gets you know, any leverage. And, and I just want you to know that we've got that victory and that power through the cross. But we've got to be vigilant. Because the Bible says, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, your adversary, and the church's adversary, and my adversary, walks around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Don't leave the door open. Amen? So I don't know how this speaks to you, but to me it's just another reminder of like, wow. God, you've done all of that for me. I didn't work for it. 
I didn't deserve it. It is all by your grace that I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And you're calling us to live a life that's worthy of that. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to check my attitude. I'm going to have to learn to get together in the context of family, in the body of Christ. Because there's only one body. And I've got to do my part to shut the door and to not give Satan a foothold. Listen, I'm confident that he won't win. And the reason I know that he won't win is because we're not going to let him win. And because we're, we're privy to his schemes, if you will. Right? When something comes up, I don't look at individuals. I look right past that. And I go, how is Satan trying to use something to get his foot in the door? And that's why all of us should be probably, I mean, he's not under every bush, right? But, I mean, we all should be vigilant and know that we have an adversary. God's up to something. And I've seen some things just on the opposite side of that and heard things just yesterday that filled my heart with so much joy. I mean, ugly crying joy. God's up to some stuff that's, that's good. And every time he is, Satan's going to do it too. He's going to try to tear it up. Amen? Did, does everything make sense, what I shared today? You see why I didn't want to go to verse 16? We'd be here till 1 o'clock. Living a life worthy of the calling. That's what he's called us to. Father, I, I humbly ask now that you would just speak to each one of us individually. You know us intimately. You know the thoughts, the secret thoughts. You know, everything that we're dealing with, everything that we're going through, and how we want to respond to those things. But in this moment, God, I pray that we would look through them, or through, through at those situations, through the filter of what you have done for us through the gospel. I pray as we look at what you've done for us, knowing that we didn't deserve it or earn it, but just as a gift of your grace, that we would see and be so overwhelmed with what you've done for us through the gospel, that we would fall to our knees and say, God, what do you want me to do that would display that I'm living a life that's worthy of the calling that I've been called to? Forgive us for the times that we take this for granted. This familiarity breeds complacency. Forgive us for those times. Forgive us for the times when we left the door open. Help us to just have a, a new sense and awareness this morning that we are in a spiritual battle and the enemy is working overtime because he knows his time is limited but God I thank you that we are on the winning team and I am confident that there is no other organization on this planet that you've put your blessing and your stamp of approval on but it's the church because you said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church so God I thank you for what you're doing I thank you for what you're going to do and I pray that each one of us would just have a sense of awareness that as we see you doing some great things that we would also be vigilant, we'd be sober, and recognize the areas where Satan might try to wreck that. And God, that we ourselves would not be guilty of leaving a door open. Father, we love you. We thank you. God, we honor you today. Lord, just fill us with your, your grace, your love, and your mercy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.